Listen then as I read from Joshua chapter 2, verse 6. This is what Holy Scripture says. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved with pity by the groaning because of those, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now these are the nations the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Libo Hamath. 
And they were therefore the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they, they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles and open to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Thinking about my grandparents this week for various reasons, and uh, one of my, I loved all my grandparents. I really loved my grandma Cook. Uh, I especially, her last name was Cook. I don't know how it was in your house. It was like Grandma Martin and Grandma Cook. That's just how we referred to them. And I loved going to Grandma Cook's house because Grandma Cook had frozen dessert. That is what we called it. That was its name, frozen dessert. And when I would go to visit, I would sit at the kitchen table like a good little boy with my parents and I would feign interest in the intolerably long conversation about all the people and places I knew nothing about. So the going-ons at Mr. Hopper's corner store there in Cookstown, Ontario, uh, what feed my Uncle Don was giving the cattle this year, the politics, intriguing politics of Simcoe County. These things would all be spoken about, and on and on and on it would go when all I wanted was the frozen dessert. And so I would sit at that table like a good little boy waiting for the most blessed words from Grandma Cook. Paul, would you like some frozen dessert? Which she would ask every time I went. It didn't, we would surprise visit. There was always frozen dessert in the freezer. And so the dessert would come. And I think that sometimes when you're reading a chapter like Judges chapter 1, which we'll look at in a moment, you can be reading something like this and think, oh man, just give me a little bit of Samson and Delilah. Like give me something other than Judges chapter one. I don't want to know about Akko, Akzeb, and Afik. But my anxious friend, I am here to tell you that you do not need to sit idly by practicing your manners, waiting for the good stuff, because there's plenty of dessert right here in Judges chapter one if you just take the time to reach into the back of the freezer. Far more than just a recounting of people and places is going on in Judges chapter 1. There's something very vital about God being taught here, and there's something quite sad about us being exposed. Now, the term judge refers to a leader, generally a political leader, who delivers or saves. It's not a person who wears a black robe and a funny white wig. When you get to the book of Judges, you're talking about deliverers or saviors. They are deliverers who are raised up by God to deliver God's people out of some kind of crisis. And so the years of the judges take place after Moses and Joshua and the, and the sort of initial foray into the promised land, and they come before the kings like Saul and David and Solomon and all who would follow them. 
So this little sort of bracketed time period is the days of the judges. And the people need judges, they need deliverers, they need saviors for this reason. Dwight read it for us in uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Do you see it there? The people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110 then drop down to verse 10, all that, verse 10, rather, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Now, that phrase, did not know the Lord, means they had no relationship with God. They, they most certainly knew about him, but they did not know him. And so the great problem in the days of the judges is that the People of God have no true relationship with God, no living relationship with God. He brought them into the promised land, and they promptly abandoned their precious Lord. And when they sinned, according to the terms of the covenant that God had just made with them on Mount Sinai, remember the Exodus and Moses and the people standing, shaking, thunder, lightning, <laughs> Ten Commandments, all the terms of the covenant, God has said to them, if you, if you break the covenant, you will fall prey to your enemies. So that's what's happening in the days of the judges. They're, they're, they're abandoning God and his ways, and they're falling prey to their enemies. They're not keeping in step with their ultimate deliverer, Yahweh, and Joshua told them that's exactly what would happen. If, if you go back to, jo you can, if this is why paper Bible, well, all Bibles are great. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, if you just turn back a page to Joshua 24, verse 14, Joshua's sort of final speech to the people, he says, now therefore, this is Joshua 24, 14, fear Yahweh, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. In other words, when they were in Egypt, they were worshiping the Egyptian gods. And serve Yahweh. If it's evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Maybe you got that plaque in your living room, but that's, that's where it's coming from. That's a, that's a challenge from a leader looking to God's people and saying, you know, pick your team. He delivered you. Are you going to serve him? Verse 16, the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods and such and such. Drop down to verse 19. Joshua said to them, you're not able to serve Yahweh for he's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And sadly, that is exactly what they did. They forsook God, worshiped idols, and God turned against them. He goes from being the one who saves them out of slavery to turning against them. And so the book of Judges covers the early years of Israel's time in that promised land, the first years after the remarkable salvation out of, out of Egypt. And, and the history of those early years in the promised land is not a glorious history. It's not a positive story. It is mostly a story of spiritual decline and failure. 
So hey, welcome to our new series on spiritual decline and failure. Hope you enjoy the next few months. Uh, But it's not just a story of spiritual decline and failure because there's this underground spring of hope running through the book if you've got eyes to see it. Now there's a a couple important things you gotta keep in mind when you get into Judges. As we make our way through these stories of failure and redemption, failure and redemption, uh, we we sang about this just a moment ago. There is a foe who's hidden power, that hymn. And if you're paying attention to that hymn, you saw there this reference maybe obscure to you about the sons of Anak. Well, the sons of Anak we're going to read about today in Judges chapter 1 because Christians for a long time have looked at the story of Judges and seen something. And what they have pointed out is this. In many ways, the book of Judges is a picture of your soul at war with indwelling sin. The whole story of Judges is a picture of you as a Christian and your personal soul at war with indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is that enemy outpost in your heart. God saves you. He redeems you. He makes you a new you. But you've got the world and the devil and your flesh or indwelling sin, that enemy outpost in the heart that you've got to do battle with. And so as we go through the book of Judges, you will see again and again and again that you need a savior. You need a judge. You need a deliverer. Now, one last thing to pack into your suitcase as we get going. Some people read the book of Judges and see it as a retelling of ethnic cleansing. In fact, there's a lot of people who read books like Judges and go, you know what? I really like the kind Jesus of the New Testament, and I strongly dislike the mean God of the Old Testament. There's all kinds of problems with a statement like that. I won't go into all of them right now, uh, but we're tempted to think things like that because we presume the people living in that promised land were innocent or they hadn't been given time to repent. When in actuality, God took Abram hundreds and hundreds of years earlier right to this very land. Abram sojourned in the land. It wasn't his land. He, didn't, he wasn't populating that land. But God spoke to him in that land. And listen to what he said. This is from Genesis 15, verse 13. Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Hey, Grandpa, how'd you like that prophecy for your family? And the Lord goes on, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. Your progeny, your children shall come back here in the fourth generation. And here's the reason for the delay. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites, or as we see them here in Judges, called Canaanites, were granted by God four centuries 400 years to change from their evil ways, to repent from their evil idolatry. And then the 400-year mark came, and God chooses to use the nation of Israel as an instrument of justice against them. 
So in Joshua, the book of Joshua, you have the story of the conquest of the land. They, they sort of come in on the margins of the land and then they put a big map on the wall and say, once we get done here, this will be yours, this will be yours. We'll have a little Dan up here and a little Judah down here. Uh, but it's not their land yet. That's what's going on in Judges. Judges is the story of the possession of the land. And in both of them, we get lessons for God's people. Now, I've given you in your song sheet this morning, I don't often point this out, we usually put some kind of a sermon outline in there. I'd encourage you to look at it because Judges chapter 1 is something of a complicated text, but I want you to see the argument of Judges 1 because it's really the argument of the entire book. And so I think the author of Judges is brilliant here in what he does and what he does. And so he kind of proceeds in this way. He starts by saying, look, dependence on God. I'm just going to get the big headings in my sermon outline here. Dependence on God and reliance on each other, that leads to victory. And believers who, who, who exercise real faith will advance into the world. Thirdly, men of little faith, they give up too early in the battle. And unwise saints make terms, make peace with the sin around them. Unfaithful saints accept sin into their lives. And God rebukes half-hearted people who should be making progress in the world. And all of that results in you and I needing a Savior. So here we go, right? We're going to follow. That's, that's sort of the, the book in large, but it's also chapter 1. So here we go. Uh, first of all, dependence on God and reliance on each other. This is what leads to victory. So the very first thing in Judges chapter 1 is a good thing. Uh, we see God's people asking for God's direction. Verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Yahweh said through a prophet, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, you don't have to read a lot of your Bible to, to not begin to see that God loves it when his people consult with him for his help. Have you been truly praying? Not just when you're in need, but before you make decisions. And having gotten the Lord's direction, now they seek their brother's assistance. Verse 3, Judah said to Simeon, his brother... Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may, we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And I think the book begins this way to demonstrate what ought to always be happening with the people of God. They seek God's help and direction, and then they work together to accomplish that in the world. That's as much true for the church in Toronto as it was true for the church in Palestine. That ancient gathering assembly was off to a great start that yielded great results. Sort of. So the great victory with mixed results. Verse 4, Judah went up. Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And that's what we would call the great start. And yet that great start turns sour really quickly. Israel had been given very clear marching orders from God through Moses as far as what they were to do when they made progress into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 20. But in the, this is God speaking. In the cities of these peoples, that, sorry, Moses speaking, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, 
You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against Yahweh your God. And yet rather, here's, here's the first battle and the first victory, and rather than fulfill God's clear command, Judah adopts the ethics of Canaan. Verse 5. They found Adani Bezek at Bezek, kind of like the mayor of Bezek, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Oh, we just saw that. We know what to do. Canaanites, Perizzites, slaughter them. Adani Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Kids, if you want to know why that's mean, at lunch today, try to drink without using your thumbs. Parents, you're welcome. Uh, verse 7, Adon Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now, Adani Bezek acknowledges that he's being treated the way other, he had treated others, right? Verse 7, this is what I did to 70 kings. But I would argue this is the first example of Israel stooping down to the Canaanite way of doing things. When Adani Bezek says, as I have done so, God has repaid me, he uses the very general term that anybody could use for their false deity, Elohim. It could, be, could refer to Yahweh or it could just refer to any God. I think he's just talking about his own God. He's not acknowledging the justice of Yahweh here. He's using this broader term and to, in, in essence, affirm his own idolatrous religion of karma. Bad things are now happening to me because I did bad things to 70 kings. I'm fairly confident of this because of where Adonai Bezek finished out his days, which was in Jerusalem. So we read in the very next verse, verse 8, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And yet, drop down to verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And that highlights a couple of things for us. First, just because a city was conquered did not mean it was permanently subdued or, or repopulated by Jewish people. The conquest, not the takeover of Jerusalem, that's what happens in verse 8. I mean, it looks pretty good. Captured, killed, burnt to the ground. That sounds promising. The city of Jebus or Jerusalem is beaten. Then they leave it behind. They don't move in. They don't take it over. They leave it in ruins, and eventually the Jebusites slink back in and rebuild it. In fact, the city of Jerusalem, or Jebus, is going to be populated by Jebusites from now until David conquers it, hundreds of years later. And that is an excellent picture of what's going on in the book of Judges. It's an excellent picture of what's going on inside your heart. Rather than destroying the cities and its inhabitants completely, they just wounded them, shamed them, like we so often do with our sins. 
Oh, we call them out, we confess them, we even rebuke them. But we don't kill them. We don't mortify them, to use the older word. Do you remember John Owen? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be what? Killing you. Sin doesn't rest. Sin doesn't sleep. Sin's, you want to destroy the city? Fine. I'll wait a few days and I'll slink back in. This takes us to the other thing about Jerusalem. It turned, it turned into a place of evil. I mean, no wonder Adani Bezak crawled his way into Jerusalem because it was full of Canaanites. It was full of the ways of the Canaanites. And he was a Canaanite at heart if he wasn't much of a Canaanite in digits. <laughs> well, what about you? Are you killing sin? Are you eradicating it and then filling up the void with gospel, light, and truth? Are you repopulating the heart with truth? Are you beating sin back only to let it crawl back in toeless and thumbless into your life again? We must be constantly fighting to the death, the jebus in our heart, not letting any enemy reside there, not walking away after the battle and thinking, oh, my work here is done. No, that place has to be settled and populated with truth and with grace. Otherwise, sin and wickedness will slink back in. And one of the ways you do this successfully is by seeking the help of God and depending on your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we do that because of the second thing here, believers with faith advance into the world. So the conquest of the Canaanites begins in earnest here in verse 9. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And the whole next verses down to verse 18 is just explaining those three areas. Hill country, Negev, and lowlands. Hill country is the area sort of in the hills, just south of Jerusalem. The Negev, that word means southern or down, is, is, is the desert south of that, the desert areas. And lowlands appears to be everything that goes west from there toward and right over to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And now we start to see even more mixed results. So first, there's success in the hill country campaign, that hilly terrain just south of Jerusalem, Hebron. Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron or Hebron, and now the, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai, who uh, we know from the book of Joshua are giants. They're like Goliath dudes, and they're the three sons of Anak. They are called the Anakim. You just sang about them. And we know that that city was set aside for Caleb, and that's important because of what happens next, and that's the city of Debur. Look at verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debur. The name of Debur was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb, right, guy who conquered Hebron, Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. This is one of these cultural things that can sound weird to us, but it's actually a very honorable thing. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. That also might sound odd that his nephew is doing this in order to get his cousin as a wife. We'll talk about that later. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, uh, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, 
Give me a blessing since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is a very interesting little interlude. He's like, what on earth is this doing in Judges chapter 1? I think primarily what it's doing is showing you the way things were supposed to go. Every character in this little episode is a good person. So, uh, they're, they're doing honorable things. They're, they're extending God's kingdom. They're even being courageous for the sake of love. Gentlemen. Uh, and, and Caleb, who's Caleb? Caleb's the last of that old generation, right? One of the 12 spies who came back with Joshua and gave a good report. That's, in fact, why he was given Hebron. And now he's, he's taken Hebron and he's, he's, he's doing what the Jews are supposed to do. They're supposed to extend the land. And so I've got this city. What's next? I'm going I'm to go to the next city, which is Deber. In other words, he's, he's modeling to Israel what Israel should be doing everywhere, just city by city. Take the city, populate it. Take the next city, populate it. Othniel, his nephew, is actually going to be the first to judge we're going to read about him in Judges chapter 3. He's a man of outstanding character. And not only are Othniel and Aksa given this uh, city that they've conquered, but they've got water rights from around, which is, uh, again, meant to be just a picture of the generosity and kind of the grace of this family. Like, of course, take these. Water rights when you're like in a desert are huge. <laughs> so you get here this little ray of sunshine. This, in, in micro form, is what's supposed to be taking place on the macro scale. And that runs in complete contrast uh, to the descendants of Moses' wife. So you get mixed results in the Negev campaign. Now we're going to the desert area south of Jerusalem. Mrs. Moses, uh, her family moves into Arad. So you, you remember when we were in Exodus, if you were here, you get to Exodus 18, there's this whole story of Jethro, who is the father-in-law of Moses, who comes and like all good father-in-laws, Ian, John, um, gives his sons-in-laws good advice. Uh, and then you would, you know, John might be saying yes, and you'll also notice that he left after he gave his advice. Uh, th those are my sons-in-law, so anyway, never mind. But uh, the descendants of, of these people stayed with Israel. So they're not Israelites, but they stay with Israel because Moses had invited them. He says, come into the conquered land with us, and some of them do. Verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, that's Jethro, Moses' father-in-law went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. So unlike the men of Caleb's family, these Kenites just buy up a little subdivision in Canaanville. And now you got non-Israelites living with Canaanites in the promised land. And that, my brothers and sisters, is not good. Then Judah and Simeon destroy Hormah. In verse 17, Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah, which means destruction. We destroyed it, and so we named it Destruction. But there's nothing there about repopulating it. And you've got partial victory in the lowlands campaign, campaign. Now we're going out toward the sea. Judah temporarily takes the coastal cities, verse 18. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. If you read first, 
Samuel, for 2 Samuel, for 2 Kings, you know these cities, they, these names ring a bell because these are the cities of the Philistines. So even though Israel came and destroyed the cities, they were very shortly resettled by a new people called the Philistines who became a thorn in the side of Israel for centuries. So what you see here is that there's some progress for those who exercise faith. But what about those with even less faith? This is number three. Men of little faith give up the battle too early. Judah does not take the people of the plains. Uh, verse 19, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And that seems reasonable enough. I mean, we were just slaves a little while ago, wandered in the desert for 40 years. We don't have chariots. But, and chariots don't work in hill country, so it's safe in the hill country. And you would say, well, that's pretty good. They got the hill country. You would say that except for something Moses told them before they came into the land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A nation that had crossed seas and marched around tumbling city walls ought to have run out into the plains against those iron chariots saying, let's see what the Lord will do. Oh, for more courage like that in the world, Christian courage of men and women who don't just look around at what they can see, but remember what God has said and then move forward in action to see what God might do. But they don't. Neither does Benjamin fully take Jerusalem. Verse 20, Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, the three giants. You say, why are we repeating that again? I think we're repeating that again because uh, we, we just talked about it in verse 10. Why are we talking about this again? Because the author is saying, do you, you remember that, right? You, you remember giants and one dude Old dude, do you remember what, what Caleb says? He goes, you know, I was, uh, I was 45 when this thing started. I wandered for another 40 years. I'm now 85 years old. I feel like I'm 30. Let's go take Hebron. And they do. 85 years old. And it's like the author's just like, you remember that, right? Canaanites, giants, be like Caleb. Remember that Benjamin? But Benjamin doesn't seem to have that faith. Verse 21, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Caleb is used of God in a mighty victory. Not only did he capture a fortified city, he slays the giants to get it done. Benjamin fails to rid Jerusalem of all its Jebusites. And so the Canaanites return. They give Adonai Bezek a place to live. It's not good. And then Joseph. Joseph lets those sinners regather. Verse 22, the house of Joseph went up also against Bethel, and Yahweh was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. That's important in a minute. And the spies, scouting out Bethel, saw a man coming out of the city. They said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. This probably means like many cities, there'd be a main gate that would open during the day, close at night, but there would often be little 
secret ways to get into the city, and they say to this dude, hey, we're going to destroy your city. Would you like your family to live? So tell us how to sneak in. And he does. He showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. What are they supposed to do with every Canaanite? Destroy them. No living thing. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That's its name to this day. This is, again, what you would call mixed victory. Since the tribe of Joseph let the Luzite go, what did he do? He ran off. He rebuilt another city. He prolonged the line of evil Canaanites. So there's victory, but not all the way. And that leads to this increasing tale of woe. Number four, unwise saints make terms, make peace with the sin that's around them. You might call this section, the Canaanites live among Israel. Kind of like tolerating ungodly anger in your home. You've shacked up with sin. And the author begins to summarize the battle of the rest of the 12 tribes. He starts with Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun, who instead of clearing the land out of those sinful nations and their sinful practices, listened to a U2 song and said, hey man, coexist. So Manasseh, let the Canaanite slaves stay in their land. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshion, its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So they conquered, but they failed to vanquish. What did that mean? Well, that meant that those sinful, beautiful Canaanite young women went to college with the Israelite young men. And they fell in love and they married and they adopted their religions and off the story goes. Then Ephraim, Ephraim let Canaanite people live right, right next door to them. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Getzer, so the Canaanites lived in Getzer among them. Zebulun let Canaanite slaves remain. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. So you got Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun, three of the 12 tribes of Israel, failing to fulfill the one mandate they had. They had been told to devote all the Canaanites to destruction, and they are letting them live everywhere. And for that reason, the Canaanites lived among the people of Israel. Why does that matter? Well, Jesus said something about a little leaven But things get even worse. Number five, unfaithful saints accept sin in their lives. They don't just make peace with it, but they accept it. If we were to call the last section, the Canaanites live around Israel, we would call this one, Israel lives among the Canaanites. So they move from letting sin exist around them to inviting sin to stay. They let Canaanite culture stay the dominant culture, telling themselves that's going to be okay because it's a subdued culture. 
Asher says, hey man, live and let live. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or Achzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehov. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, not just the Canaanites living among the Israelites. Now it's the Israelites living among the Canaanites. The wordplay is important. The inhabitants of the land, they did not drive them out. It's one thing to have those rotten Canaanites as your maids and your butlers, your gardeners and your groomers. It's quite another thing for you to live in Canaanite territory and act like a Canaanite. Naphtali went the forced labor route with idolaters. Uh, Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites. Naphtali lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, which is house of the sun god, so it's an idol temple, and of Beth Anath, which would essentially be the house of Baal's wife. They became subject to forced labor for them. Subject to forced labor, but they can still go to temple whenever they feel like it. Naphtali maybe does a little bit better than Asher, but not by much. It certainly doesn't last because subduing is not the same thing as eradicating. Anyway, both Asher and Naphtali do better than Dan. Dan, verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. Dan is hiding in the hills and that's not commendable. They're a tiny tribe to be sure, but a tiny tribe who serves a big God and their fearful retreat led to now a smudge of boundaries because Joseph makes kind of a land grab off of Dan. It's it's Danite territory. Verse 35, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Horesh, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became uh, became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. So Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, it looks like they've taken some of Dan's land or at least subjected some of the Canaanites who live in Dan's land into forced labor. And that too is not good. And it looks even worse on Dan because that city, Ajalon, the verse 35, Ammonites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres in Ajalon. What was Ajalon? Ajalon is where Joshua is battling for that city and says, sun stand still that we might have complete victory. And the sun stood still. You just, like you just had a huge victory there. And now you're surrendering back to the Canaanites. So you can see that things are just getting progressively worse. Number six, God rebukes is half-hearted people who should be making progress. This is Judges chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochim. We'll speak about the angel of the Lord later, not today. He's an important figure in this book. And he said, the angel said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. 
End of message. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, weeping. And they sacrificed there to Yahweh. But we know those were fake crocodile tears. There's a true repentance, isn't there? And their crocodile tears led to counterfeit repentance. Because even though they cry in front of the angel, they crawl back to their sins the moment he left. Look at verse 11, Judges 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. They served Baal, that disgusting deity and idol. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm as Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Sin is like that, isn't it? Let's just take a simple example. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, riotous living, all sins in your Bible. They promise so much. And they lead to such distress. Unintended pregnancies. Sexually transmitted diseases, revoked driving licenses, prison. And what do many people do when the prison door clanks and locks behind them? They cry out to the Lord. That's what Israel did too. And God, in his remarkable mercy, would send help to Israel in the form of a judge, a deliverer, a savior. So this is verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of, their, out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Hence, brothers and sisters, we have the book of Judges, plural. Not the book of Judge. Like a dog returns to its vomit, so Israel would return again and again to her sins. How we need a book of judge 
singular. And praise God, he wrote it. For the best any of these judges could do was point toward a final judge, an ultimate deliverer, the world's only savior, Jesus Christ, God's only son, the one who would rescue us from our slavery to sin, the one who empowers us to mortify indwelling sin, the one who will lead us to the promised land of no more sin, and the one who will listen to our prayers when we finally come to our senses and the big mess we make out of our lives and will deliver deliver us from evil. Have you come all the way to Jesus like that? Have you repented of all your terrible sins? Have you asked God to forgive you for the awful things you've done or said or thought? Not just when the prison door clanks. You're like, oh, I really need you, Lord. And then, oh, I'm free. God who? Have you abandoned any hope for heaven apart from Jesus. That's the only way to be right with God is through him. And if you have done this, then God has saved you. If you have not done this, God has not saved you. So you must come all the way to God through Jesus, who is the final judge. And if you do that, you will live your life with all of us as saints, taking up residence for a time in Canaan. Now, not, I just want to be clear, not for a second are Christians called to kill anybody. We're not about ethnic cleansing. We're about ethnic clustering. Jesus said, I'm going to have people from every tongue and tribe, and aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that gospel went past Israel so that you could be in it? So what are we supposed to do? We love our enemies. We call for repentance and faith in God. We do good in the land, and all because of the one the one who was devoted to destruction on our behalf. The one who has freed you to live in Canaan without becoming Canaanite. May God save us all. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts, help us to mortify our sins, not to make peace with them. Grant us a spirit of courage to be used of you as you see fit. And do all of this for Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen.